From Citizen Studios in Asheville, this is The Mezzanine. It's the show where we dive deep into artists' pasts to help find meaning in the present. I'm Cass Harrington. On today's show, we're going to meet a writer and performer who's not afraid to touch topics that most of us would find too embarrassing or uncomfortable to share. In fact, she says it's those themes that allow us to discover deep truths about ourselves. Her name is Gina Cornejo, and her latest work is called Dirty Laundry, because that's what it is. Personal stories that she wants to air out publicly. She shares intimate details about relationships, marriage, and her personal journey with divorce. The show was supposed to premiere in January at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts, but the Omicron variant forced them to cancel. Instead, Gina and her collaborators with Stuart Owen Dance decided to film the piece and stream it online through the month of February. We're going to talk to Gina about the stories that make up Dirty Laundry, and then we'll go further back to meet someone from her past who still joins her on stage. Stay with us. Gina Cornejo, thank you so much for coming on The Mezzanine. I'm so glad you could join us. Yay! I'm so, so grateful to be here with you. And I think maybe a logical place to start is just your latest project. It's called Dirty Laundry. Can you tell us briefly kind of where the concept came from? Dirty Laundry is a compilation originally of six autobiographical stories of mine that I had created actually over the span of time from about like 2007 all the way up until 2019. So it was a happy accident to be within the pandemic and decide just to excavate writing I had. And it was a loose thought of, oh, these pieces kind of connect within the topics of dating and marriage and divorce. Reading the script, you can tell that they are flashbacks or moments that speak to a bigger truth Mm -hmm. and require a lot of courage (laughs) to tell those stories. But I want to go to the show description that I, um, that has been going out, you know, online on press releases. We've worked very hard (laughs) on all of the languaging as we had submitted for grants and different avenues. I'm very, um, thank you for honoring those words. Okay, Okay. so in two sentences, this cringeworthy yet charming film brings together seven artists to enchant viewers from the comfort of their homes, both an invitation to open dialogue and offering solidarity. Dirty Laundry passionately unearths gritty topics that are often buried. Cringeworthy? You decided to start your show description with cringeworthy. Yes, and yes, and I will always lean into something that if it makes me sweat it's it's got to catch someone else it's got to be relevant to someone else and and there are moments many moments i've lost many weeks of sleep over this time frame where i'm like can i say that who who's giving me the permission to to say these things that are very personal and and full of questions within questions about this, these, the text that I choose to say these stories within, how I choose to present these stories. It might make you reel back. There are moments where you're like, is she okay? Is she going to be okay? Um, was she okay then? Like, 
and I and I know that we we have that in common. There are moments in our lives when we do make a choice or we do say something that to ourselves later we're like, "Ooh, what was that?" And so that's where for me I take that microscope to to really get in there and and do that work, not only for my own benefit, but I hope for the benefit of so many others that are like, "I never want to pull out a magnifying glass." And I'm like, "Well, you're going to have to." And and if you choose to do this, you're an adventurous. Well, you know, as someone who also has experienced divorce, going through your writing was like, oh, my goodness, she feels a lot of the feelings that I have moved through. But I have this instinct that's like, oh, you're not going to say these things out loud. And you just somehow beautifully break that down. How are you able to do that? Where does that come from? <laughs> um. I'm so grateful and thank you so much for saying exactly what you just did of your of your own personal relationship to divorce. That's something for me that makes all of this worthwhile when people are able to even say those words out loud to someone else who might be a stranger. The the courage that I get to say these things is like this these are the words coming back full circle to myself so I can have these words to lean on. And recognize that that other people need need to lean on something too. Mm. So my my I guess it also just might be stupidity. I'm putting a lot out there, <laughs> laying it out. But also I don't think that there's any way else to do that than through than through the fire. We're gonna listen to a chapter of Dirty Laundry called Dicks. Gina, first, where does the title come from? And tell us what we're about to hear. The original title for this was Dick's Sporting Goods. I wanted to catch people off guard. I wanted to allude to everything else (laughs) about this piece that then when you hear it, it's not. We have this moment where my boyfriend is on the road with a company. He's a charming guy. He's a very magnetic personality. And so women would come up to him after his emceeing and give him their number, talk him up, whatever it was. And at one point when we were on the phone, because it was a long-distance relationship at that point for that moment, uh, he told me one of the pickup lines in particular that was written to him. And I just honestly let my imagination run wild with it. Okay, let's take a listen. This is Dix, a scene from Dirty Laundry. They're always somehow blonde, these girls, and their clothes are definitely prettier than mine, and their haircuts certainly trendier than mine, and they wear those shoes that girls seem to wear, those slipper ballet flats, and they're gold, and they match the purse they carry, and they smell... What you're describing is the paranoia of being away from your love and, oh, you're hearing someone was hitting on him and you just, the mind runs wild and that's natural. Yes. The lack of control of it, the the humanity of it that we were talking about before of just, these are very real moments that sometimes we don't let ourselves feel things all the way through. And that's something with this piece, like, 
I, I do. I invite you to hold on to that hot coal just a little longer, just to really get to the end of that feeling for when you put it down and ice your hand. I invite you to, to feel that with me because I do believe we all have these moments of playing out fights in our heads. What would I do if I ever found XYZ? Like, this is the chance to hop on, like, grab a ticket and ride with me in all of those moments that you've had yourself in the privacy of your own mind, just like staring at a wall, brooding. This is that piece. Well, I wonder too, I think um, in some of the moments, the chapters you seem to be searching, um, and you can audibly hear yourself processing. And now that your performance is out there, have you been able to come to conclusions? Have, are there things you've learned? Mm, yes. And they continue to change. They continue to upgrade, I think is what it is in the learning. It's been a lot to um, witness my writing take a new shape of how it was to be able to work with these two collaborators of Stuart Owen Dance, Gavin and Vanessa, where for the first time I got to see their choreographic interpretation of one of my numbers, racing number. And in the film, you'll see it's a, it's a witnessing, it's a remembering. And to watch them dance out this super private, beautiful, tender experience that I had that I link so closely to my own history. I saw it for the first time. They were nervous to share it. I'm like, I'm so excited. And then they they danced it and um, to Gavin's beautiful soundscape that he created for the piece. And I was in tears. They just cracked it open. They just knocked it out of the park with their interpretation of my words that are my life. And that's also so healing. It's healing to see them dance it too, because they're actually married. They're a husband and wife duo, which I could not have planned this better because it's something that then they get to reflect on these moments of my personal journey in their very current marriage and time together. And if that's one thing I can leave with this too, is like learn from my mistakes learn from this text, learn from these stories. We all have our own, and also it's just so powerful to just put it out there. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll talk some more. Stay with us. My name is Mason. I work front of house at Session Cafe inside Citizen Vinyl. Every morning before we open, we pick out the record that we'll play for the day. It's kind of like our daily soundtrack. There's an intention behind every record we play. Maybe it's tied to the same day in music history, it's an artist's birthday, or it's just maybe a new favorite of someone behind the bar. If you're in Asheville, I hope you'll stop by. This is The Mezzanine. I'm Cass Harrington, and today I'm speaking with Gina Cornejo. She's a writer and performer in Asheville, and her latest performance, Dirty Laundry, has been adapted into a film, and it's now streaming online. I'm going to have you read um, a line from the first chapter that I want to unpack a little bit. The muddled over mud of moronic missteps most certainly learned from our mothers and fathers 
from the murky wombs of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers, all immigrants departing and arriving, marred from marital battles of their own. You describe something that I think a lot of people have felt, not even with in the, in the context of relationship, but just decisions about life. Are we following the tracks of our forebearers? Are we following the framework of culture or religion? But you take it even further looking at ancestry. Could you help us unpack that a little bit? It's something that I always carry with me, that constant backpedal of recognizing that It's not just me that brought me to this place. It's never just us that steps forward, ever. It's something where I so appreciate my mom in these moments as we just continue to talk about my dad, my papi, um, Ernesto, her first husband. And as I was going through my divorce, watching her unpack these missteps, unpack this mud that I'm like, wow, it's just, it's decades of wading through this mud that sometimes it gets a bit more clear and sometimes it just stays so thick, so stuck and so sticky that we just kind of call out to the ones who came before us. That's always in my journey, especially as I write. Like, who else am I speaking for here? Who else needs to be? heard who else needs to be celebrated and I for me if I can start that within my family and my my lineage and my heritage and and all of the blank spots too that have yet to be filled in all those new moments and quirks that's for them as well were you able to find any commonalities in your divorce similar to your mother's or in your patterns of being in relationship, you know, some of those things transfer. Transfer. Um, there, There were some things, there were definitely some patterns I began to notice more about myself and of how I was being raised as an adult, if that makes sense, in this marriage, um, in this very heteronormative marriage, it was a lot of self-sacrificing. It was a lot of things I wasn't even recognizing that I was taking part in until I had the divorce and had the distance from it of like, my gosh, where did I pick that up from? And to no fault of anyone else, I, I did it. Like I said, I, I take full responsibility. And also, I look at the people around me of like where did they where are they picking this up from and it's and it's very apparent the things that i remember being instructed to do was to care for someone else a bit more than myself those are beautiful things that, and i'm very close to my mom and i know she's going to hear this and i love that we are on this journey now together too It's a beautiful thing to be able to connect with her, to reconnect for her own self in her marriage now, in in her relationship to her mom and dad, and, and down the line. It's a beautiful opportunity that we get to have with each other to relearn these things that we're like, where did we pick that up from? Can you tell us about 
how you grew up and how you navigated the many identities going on in your household. My dad, Ernesto Cornejo, was born in Peru. My mom, Donna, was born in Chicago, Illinois. It's something where growing up, Spanish was my first language with my sister and myself. It, it went that way for a period of time until at our really very sweet kindergarten place called Children's Workshop in was Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where the teachers had to talk to my mom when she came to pick us up, like, how is everything? We had just visited Peru with my cousins and my whole family in Lima, and the teachers said, we have a we have something to ask you if it's possible can you can you have Gina and Marisa speak English because we know that they just got back from Peru and they seem to have had a really great time but we can't understand anything that they're saying but we know that they're very excited to be back and and that they had a great time on their travels and i think about that a lot of where i lost my voice, where I lost that connection to this whole other country, this whole other family. While we continued to live in Wisconsin, we lived in Florida as well growing up. My dad passed away when I was seven. So when his passing happened, I think there was a big switch. Um, One that was very tender as well with my mom remarrying Um, My stepdad, Rusty, who's an incredible person and does not speak Spanish. So, of course, of course, you know, you make them feel welcome. And for me, that's when I felt the language go. Did you feel like a part of yourself was being erased? Not at the time, but it wasn't until two of my cousins, Mili and Christy, had come over to the States from Peru to visit my mom, Tia Dana, and they came to stay with us when we lived in Wisconsin my senior year of high school. And I was like, they look like me. I was so baffled by like how they look like me, how we talk the same, our humor. Like it was strange and wonderful. And I didn't know like where to place it. I had no place to place any blame, any judgment. It was just more astonishment Mm -hmm. that they were my family and that they loved me and that they had these memories of me in Peru that I was like, I don't know. I have nothing to offer because they would offer these beautiful stories of like fun times of us together as cousins, as primas in Peru that I was, I had no recollection of. And it was actually then that I had started to make a deeper connection on my own with my cousins to continue to keep the connection between my my cousins and my family and essentially then my my papi. What was it like for you to return to Peru as an adult? Wild and surreal and heartbreaking. All of these people that are my family, chose to remember me this whole time when I had no idea they really existed. 
I guess we should back up how much time had passed since you had last seen them to when you went back to Lima. When my dad passed away, I was seven. And I didn't go back to Peru until high school, right before, like the end of my senior year into college. So I'm just trying to like be inside your body for a moment. Like you're 18, you're revisiting your father's homeland, going back to family you hadn't seen in more than a decade. Of course, there's this huge absence. What do you remember? The beautiful moment of coming into the house of my Tia Milagro, her remembering me so well, welcoming in, of course, welcoming me in with open arms. And it's something that I choose not to ever forget, which is when she was giving me a tour of the house and telling me in Spanish, like everything. And I was trying to pick it up as best as I could and um, showing me the rooms. And remember when you slept in here? I was like, no, like all those little moments in this house that I was like, I don't know. I, I was such a different little human being in those moments that she, as an adult, was allowing me to try to remember and recall. And we got to a portion in the house where it's the kitchen that then leads into the dining room and a little sitting room. And she goes, oh, wait, wait, wait. And she she goes into this other side room and she comes out and has this beautiful picture of my dad, of my poppy, like in this one of his suits with like the ruffles and these white ruffles and like black trim on the ruffles. It's a picture in a frame that like definitely hadn't been put together the night before. Like it's something that they have had up in the house for a while. And she brings out this little vase with flowers in it and she puts the picture of my poppy and the vase with flowers like on a countertop, like right there on the table for us to see. And she's like, okay, now you're here. And that had never happened before. I keep pictures of my poppy to myself in little books for myself, by myself, in really quiet, small moments. And to see him like displayed and recognized made such an impact that that was also the permission to call that place home again, that I had completely forgotten that that was ever a possibility to ever do. And that's all it took was that like extra bit of care, extra bit of remembrance and honoring of where I'm from. I'm sure too the vocalization, just hearing your Tia say, now you're here, that was validating. For some time, did you feel like that world was cut off or you didn't have permission to call yourself Peruana or call yourself Latina? Like how, how did you navigate that time? Absolutely. I found a lot more of my voice actually being in the ensemble of Teatro Luna in Chicago when even auditioning for them, I remember thinking like, I'm not, I'm not Latina. I'm not Peruana. Like who do, who do I think I am? thinking I can audition for them because I used to speak Spanish when I was younger or, you know, or I used to have a father who was from Peru. Like all of these things were like 
another version of me that I thought, well, I think I'm maybe not that anymore. There was nothing in my life helping me to reclaim any of that. Well, we should say, too, your father was a very special person. He was loved by the community. He was a mariachi singer in the group was called Voces de Oro, Voices of Gold. Where do glimmers of him show up in your work or your life or your personality? Mm. When I have gone to Peru with my family, someone gets out a guitar and they always make me sing. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't really know these songs, but I'm going to try. And it's such a dreamscape to be in in those moments when that has happened with them because it's my poppy right there with me in those moments of like, he would always sing. So you sing. So we do this now, that kind of thing. I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, I had this beautiful moment that happened not too long ago. I have a very side side gig with a friend of mine, Jared McIntyre, and he plays the guitar and he plays the bass and I sing. And we were invited to be a part of a little reopening celebration at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. And we were going to do a song. We're like, perfect. How do we, what do we want to sing? What do we want to do? I had decided on Say a Little Prayer. And then I said, I want to make it different though. Like he's like, yeah, let's mash it up. So I wanted to mash it up. And we did with a little part of the start of the song from In the Heights, the song called Breathe. We mashed it up in such a way where I wanted to incorporate Spanish. It was something I believed as well within that platform of being at the Wortham to kind of shed a little light on some, maybe someone like me performing um, a little bit of a different take on a classic that maybe a lot of people do know. It felt so special. And I kept wondering, like, why does this feel so, like, right and real and good and good to sing in Spanish? And I was having a real moment with it. And the night went so beautifully well. It was very well received. And I couldn't shake this feeling of something more to it. And I went home, and I had had a dream, and my poppy was in my dream. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I got out an old photo book of his, and... I looked at the back of this one photo, and it was the last birthday that my sister and I spent with him. We went out to dinner in Milwaukee, and it was a photo of just him. I look at the back of the photo, and it says the date of July 21st. And that day that we performed, that night, was July 21st. It was his birthday, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And in the middle of the night, like, had the dream, woke up, I need to see that picture. And I was like, what? Like, Hmm. I love that. Do you think, was he with you on stage that night? I felt him too. I did. I was like, something's here. And of course, in a theater, there's so many people there, Mm -hmm. spiritually, (laughs) in different forms than butts in the seats, you know? So um, there was, there was just something extra that I couldn't put my finger on. And then by the time I put my finger on it, I was like, that's awesome. So yeah, he he shows up. He definitely shows up. That's so dear. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your very honest emotions. Thank you for hearing them 
And thank you for sharing yourself, too. The Mezzanine is a production of Citizen Studios, located at Citizen Vinyl in Asheville, North Carolina. The theme music was composed and produced by Gar Ragland. This episode was also engineered by Gar. Eric Piper is our graphic designer. Kirsten Clower manages our website. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Gina Cornejo. And I'm your host, Cass Harrington. See you next time. <laughs>